You're listening to Draft Chat. Episode 12. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Draft Chaff Podcast. This is episode number 12. My name is Zach. I'm one of your lovely hosts. And with me, as always, is Ben Fisher. What's up, Ben? Not much, Zach. And you know, I was doing a little bit of research. I noticed that if you Google Draft Chaff, we are now the second search result. How cool is that? Wait, are we really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, that's that's pretty dope. Yeah, uh, followed fo- following only a single Reddit post <laughs> titled Draft Chaff. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, well, that's good to know. I had no idea. That's really cool. Uh, well, everybody, today we are talking about the art of bluffing. We're going to take an in-depth look at uh, what it takes to bluff, why you should be doing it, why you might not want to do it, um, how to tell when your opponent's doing it, things of that nature. We're just going to be talking all about bluffing today. Before we get to that, a couple of housekeeping items. We do have a Discord channel. It's completely free for anybody who cares to join that. You can check out the link to that in either the description for the episode or on our Twitter account, at DraftChaffPod. But we got a few members joining us this week. Just quick shout out those guys or ladies over there. Andy X, Muckraker, Rob Dies at the End, and Turbo Ninja. Thanks for joining the Discord. We've been having a fun time chatting with you guys and uh, just uh, talking about Zendikar Rising. Yeah, yeah. We've had some good conversations. If you're not on our Discord, you're missing out. Come hop on, talk about the spoilers, about our first drafts, whatever you want to do. Yeah. And on top of that, we also have a Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash draft pod. If you are really digging the show and we're helping you get better at limited, maybe think about going over there to uh, contribute. That's kind of the best way to get back to the show at this point. Our lowest tier is a dollar per episode. So if you just want to help out a little bit, that's that's a great way to do it. And there are higher tiers if you so desire. Um, you can get special roles in the Discord channel, depending on your tier for that. Uh, you also will get access to our full show notes and access to our patron questions channel for weekly questions that we would like to start doing should those start to come in we'll also buy you lunch <laughs> or something uh, like you're that. on the hook for that now <laughs> yeah you, you can hold me to that uh first patron to sign up uh, after this podcast i'll, I'll buy you lunch <laughs> that's that's a ben fisher promise you heard it here first folks okay i think that covers it for all of our housekeeping let's get into our crack and draft type thing this week, Ben, we're looking at a pack of Amonkhet Remastered. We don't have the full spoiler out for Zendikar Rising. We would have liked to do that here, but we don't have that yet. So one last pack of Amonkhet Remastered. The pack is as follows. We've got a Sidewinder Naga, Festering Mummy, Zealot of the God Pharaoh, Countervailing Winds, Desert of the Mindful, Final Reward, Those Who Serve, Dauntless Aven, Wander in Death, Supply Caravan, If Near Deadlands, Reduce to Rubble, Merciless Javelinier, and our rare is glorious end. So after that, what are you what are you thinking when you when you open this pack up? Well, uh, we're gonna slam the mythic, of course. Glorious end. I'm ready to die. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, that's about all you're gonna get out of this card. You just lose the game. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I mean, there's a few solid picks in here. It's a relatively weak pack. Getting a few multicolor uncommons is not ideal. I, I often like you know just slamming a strong uncommon bomb, but these ones are both a little narrow. And reduce is. Not that much better than countervailing wins. In fact, I think it might be a little worse. I'm probably on the Deadlands or the final reward here myself. How about you? Yeah, you know, I look at the gold uncommon here and Merciless Javelinier just hasn't really gotten there for me. 
I haven't found red black to be one of the better archetypes in this format and javelinier just really doesn't doesn't do what I expect it to do. You can't really go wrong taking some of the best common removal you can get your hands on in final reward and if near deadlands is really good but I think I don't know how 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 have you seen these going at this point? I mean for a long time people were undervaluing the the deserts in general but are the uncommon ones still in that that uh kind of camp? I found that it kind of depends on your draft pod. Every once in a while, you'll get a pod where you you see like fifth and sixth pick Deadlands and and Chef at Dunes, and people don't really care about them that much sometimes. I think because Amonkhet Remastered is a, a bit of a weird set where it didn't have like a full release uh, like a lot of other sets do, and all the hype and in depth strategy guides from everyone on Earth. I would probably take the Deadlands here. I, I really like the versatility of Deadlands, and I think it's my favorite of the uh, Desert Painlands. It, it's just so great in the late game if you end up using this instead of say your removal spell to kill off a creature that actually is applying pressure i don't know anything that can kill a gust walker in this format and (laughs) doesn't count towards your spell count that that's a pretty solid first pick for my book yeah i think i agree with you picking up the common removal isn't super difficult in this format and uh, the deadlands isn't uncommon so unlikely to see more of those in the future all right that brings us to our teferi tibolt section uh ben why don't you start us off with this one sure so uh, this week, my Teferi is that I'm starting a new job. So I'm a teacher, for those who don't know. I teach uh, astronomy, physics, physical science at the high school level. And, and it's limited exciting. Magic the Gathering. And I guess I also technically teach limited, <laughs> if that's uh, something else. Maybe someday I'll start like a, a trading card club at my school, something, something like that, when COVID is long gone and people can meet in person and play Magic again. But yeah, it's, it's fun. Uh, school's just starting, but... I was telling you a bit before the show that it's it's a lot right now. Every school is facing its own difficulties, and mine is not an exception. Yeah, well, congrats to you for the new the new position. I I know from experience that you're going to be able to uh, knock that out of the park. I just yeah, hopefully the uh, COVID restrictions aren't causing too much pain for you. Oh man, it's not the easiest job to be starting right now. It, it, teaching is a hard job as is. It, highly rewarding mm-hmm. but also it's a high risk high reward type job <laughs> to <laughs> foreshadow our episode a little bit my uh, my tibble this week though is a totally different story and one of the reasons i need a job because i knew a, I, I need a new pc my pc is trash right now i'll be playing arena like a ranked queue and it'll just crash like it'll just shut down i'll have no other programs open i have tried showing this to my friend that built it for me uh I know nothing about computers. Zach knows everything about computers. Okay, I don't know if that's uh, true, but thank you. <laughs> well, I, I showed it to a friend that built this for me, not Zach, a, a different person, and they could not figure out what was going on with it. I don't know what is. Uh, it's outside my realm of knowledge, so I, it's kind of old. It's made of hand-me-down parts, so at this point, I'm due for a new one. All I'm saying is if it crashes in the middle of my uh, my oh, mythic no. qualifier this weekend, it, it would just be the worst I don't know what I would do. I've lost probably thousands of gold and gems <laughs> because of this PC, which is kind of ridiculous. You know, when I read that you were having this trouble in your in the show notes, I honestly was just like, dude, are you sure it's not just Arena? Because you, you <laughs> read and hear about people crashing on Arena all the time. But if your actual PC is just like completely bricking, that's a, yeah, oh, that's yeah. a problem. Yeah, it's bad. I've actually gotten very good at like, it'll, it'll freeze sometimes and... Uh, I'll have to like quickly restart it. I've gotten very efficient at restarting my PC before like my match clock runs out for the turn and it passes. But I have some of my least favorite games are ones where I pass uh, 
and then uh, like I freeze as I'm passing, and then by the time like I get my PC back on, I've time walked myself. Oh man, yeah, that sucks. Donate to the Patreon to help Ben get the PC. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's actually going all back towards the list. Maybe someday. Yeah. Well, good luck to you with that. Um, if you need help parting out a new PC, hit me up because I can totally help you out with that. Oh, I, I probably will. Yeah. For me this week, well, my Teferi is kind of, I hate to do it to you guys, but it's kind of an announcement of an announcement. Uh, okay, know, Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know that's everybody's favorite thing, but we have some really spicy news coming up. Probably we'll be able to announce it next week. So just stay tuned for next week's episode. Speaking of next week's episode, we're going to be doing the format breakdown for Zendikar Rising by that point. So you'll want to stay tuned for that anyway, uh, if mm-hmm. you're interested in drafting that format. But um, yeah, we have some really awesome stuff coming. So very excited about that. Uh, we kind of solidified a lot of this this past week. So that's that's why it's my Teferi for this week. My Tybalt for this week is that unfortunately I O3'd for the first time in, in Amonkhet Remastered Draft with this Oof. kind of medium red black mid-range list it was just it was just so bad i if i recall correctly i, I mana screwed the first two games and then i flooded the third and it was just like it was just a nightmare i and it was actually like a relatively sweet list i was splashing white for a trial of solidarity but then otherwise Ooh. i just had these awesome I, I honestly i don't remember the entire list off the top of my head but um it was it was a, an okay deck like it was pretty pretty decent I just could never draw the lands I needed, or I mm-hmm. drew too many of them. Now I Classic see why you came books. down so hard on a on merciless javelinier in the crack <laughs> draft type thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't I, that that card wasn't actually in that deck, but um, I just haven't had too much luck with it anyway. Well, don't worry, we've got a, an entirely new format on the horizon. Yes, we do. So you know, Zach, I was toying around with different different names for the episode today. At first, I thought Cascade Bluffs because that's you know, the name of a land. And then I thought getting bluff, like getting buff, none of these are very good. (laughs) So instead I titled this just the art of the bluff because today our main topic is talking about one of the more niche aspects of magic. Uh, For those that might be newer, bluffing is pretending that you have a certain card or ability when you actually don't. And the skills required to bluff are they're kind of emphasized in, in more game in, in different games more often, like poker or uh, a lot of online games. There's a lot of uh, social interaction games going on right now. For example, uh, Among Us is one that's been gaining some popularity in the Magic community thanks to LSV. And uh, in Magic, we have you know draft picks and mulligan choices and sequencing. There's a million decisions per minute. So bluffing often just kind of gets left by the wayside. Some magic players never bluff at all, right? Some magic players will go <laughs> years without making a bluff, and that's just their style. I'm of the firm belief that most players should be bluffing more, and we're going to talk about when and how to bluff, and conversely, how to tell if your opponent might be bluffing. So with this in mind, a lot of your opponents, you know, they, they'll, they'll often have the trick, right? If most people are not bluffing, then if your opponent attacks a, uh, a small creature into your big creature, they usually have the trick because oftentimes people are not bluffing so calling every bluff that you see is bad business you'll often get you know two for one or one for one but you can also use this to your advantage because if not a lot of people are bluffing the ones that are bluffing like us become even more powerful so i just want to start with something i like to call extreme case analysis this is something that actually i picked up from physics teaching so we're going to focus on ourselves uh, as the ones attacking here the ones doing the bluff so let's say your opponent is fully tapped out with no creatures, they're at three life, and you have a three three. There is zero downside to attacking here. I cannot think of a single thing in the game that even gets them out of this. Maybe uh, 
murderous pact or whatever that that black pact uh now consider a different extreme you're tapped out both players are at 20 and you attack a 3-3 into their 10-10 indestructible ulamog there's pretty much no upside to attacking here now every other case we're going to talk about today falls somewhere between this the the one case where there's zero downside to attacking or the other case where there is almost zero upside to attacking. These are going to be our, our extreme cases. And from this point, we're going to be primarily talking about combat tricks when it comes to attacking or blocking. We'll get to some other bluffing cases later on. And almost all limited decks need to attack to win. So most end up with a pump spell or two. So this is going to be a pretty applicable level up idea for pretty much any limited format, maybe except cubes. Yeah, so let's start with a more general case. Let's say you have a vanilla 2-2 and your opponent has a vanilla 3-3. They're tapped out and you move to combat. Is it right to attack and bluff a pump spell? Well, we're going to list a few things to consider first. So, let's look at this through the lens of a theory that business or economic fans might uh, recognize. Cost-benefit analysis. Right, so this really just means what it says, considering the possible outcomes of a given situation, weighing the likelihood of those outcomes, and deciding if the potential risk is worth the potential reward. In our case, is the reward of getting through 2 damage worth the chance that they block your creature? So the tricky part about bluffing is that you have to run this through your opponent's head as well, and you run cost-benefit from their perspective. So let's say this is game two, and in game one your opponent saw that you're playing, say, a giant growth, which gives three, plus three plus three for one green mana. Your opponent will see your attack and think, okay, they have one forest open, they're probably representing giant growth. Am I willing to trade this creature for a tempo loss? In my experience, most people are not, which is often correct. Mm-hmm. And other factors can go into this decision, of course, but for the most part, if you run the cost-benefit from both players' perspective, it seems pretty safe. You should be bluffing away. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oftentimes, both you and your opponent will come to the same kind of subconscious agreement. Like, yeah, this is a respectable attack. I have to respect this bluff, and I'm going to let it through. Yeah, there are actually quite a few interesting um, game theoretical applications here as well. If any of you are interested in game theory or haven't looked into game theory, I would recommend doing it. The name sounds like it applies to just games, but it actually applies to a lot more than just games. Uh, You can apply game theory to life. You can apply it to relationships and the way you interact with different people, um, the way you interact with coworkers and such. It's it's a phenomenal, very interesting field, and I would definitely recommend you guys check that out if it's something that is up your alley. But thinking a step ahead of your opponent and thinking from your opponent's point of view is extremely beneficial to determining not only if you should be making a proper bluff but also if your opponents are bluffing or if you have the ability to bluff in the future so applications for relationships huh i'm gonna tell your wife that you've been (laughs) game theorying her this whole time (laughs) oh uh yeah right so let's move on Uh, (laughs) yeah there's a few other things we have to consider uh when going through potentially bluffable bluffy bluffing scenarios right what what, Mm -hmm. what are some of we're just gonna list a few off here right so one is does your opponent have mana up of course Mm -hmm. if they if they're completely tapped out then there's really not too much to think about it's whatever's on the board unless there happens to be zero cost cards in the format which isn't very frequent um in limited i mean we did just have pact of negation but ignoring that (laughs) does your opponent have mana up now you have to run a like a whole new set of numbers what pump spells are they representing are there other combat tricks maybe not a pump spell but some other type of instant speed spell that they could be casting with the mana they have up. If your opponent does have a pump spell or a removal spell, they might just snap off snap off the block in the hopes of getting a nice two-for-one, and usually that's not a great attack. Um, you can also kind of manage your opponent's behavior that way and just see what type of deck they're playing. All these different things contribute to whether or not you should be making an attack and what, or whether or not you should be bluffing something. But 
do they have mana up? That's that's uh, one of the big questions you want to be asking yourselves. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, they might be bluffing themselves, right? Uh, <laughs> instead of you just bluffing on the attack. For example, if both players have the ability to potentially cast the giant growth, well, then your attack becomes a lot more complicated and that swings are, are cost-benefit from uh, high value to, to significantly less value. Yeah, you also uh, can consider the pump fake here. Um, that's for those who don't know that's sort of the act of tapping your lands and then before casting anything you untap them which is perfectly legal in magic you can do it on arena as well you just tap your cards which makes it look like you're representing a specific card and then you untap them and you let things happen which might make your opponent think oh they do have a spell in hand and it costs x amount of mana because they just tapped that many lands they don't want to use it now which probably means they're saving it for something better i should look out for that when in reality they don't actually have that card Mm-hmm. So the next topic, uh, what are the cards? So when one of the creatures is extremely valuable, this can lead to some pretty interesting attacking and bluffing decisions. So if your opponent has a card that they consider worth protecting at all costs, they're pretty likely to play around any trick. So for example, few players are blocking and attacking 2-2 with, say, a bomb like Veto Thorn of the Dusk Rose, uh, which is a 1-3 that has a the ability to single-handedly end a late game. And it's worth way more than any combat trick. No opponent is willing to trade a giant growth for a veto. So they're often not going to block. Just attack your 2-2 straight through and you know, it'll be pretty fine. Now, uh, similarly, do not attack your veto into a 3-3. Even though this, you know, <laughs> this might just be a, a huge brain bluff because then you're going like five layers above your opponent. <laughs> in, in reality, your opponent will probably snap off the block because... You know, they're they're trading, you know, say they're 3-3 for a pump spell, but that gets them 1-3-3 closer to being able to block the veto effectively and, and kind of reduce its effective board presence. So the, uh, the cost of potentially losing a bomb like this to an opposing trick is definitely not worth trying to bluff in for a bit of damage. Definitely. One other thing to consider here, too, is if you're attempting that bluff, say you're attacking your 2-2 into veto, and they make the block, you know, they call your bluff, but you don't actually have a trick. There are very few circumstances where someone who has the trick won't snap that off and take their bomb. So if you don't have mm-hmm. it and you can't uh, snap off their bomb like that, you can't two for one them or, or whatever the situation might be, probably don't continue to make the same attack because <laughs> they know at that point you don't have that card. Unless you get super lucky and maybe you just top deck it after you bluff it for a few turns. But sure. yeah, I, I agree. Okay, so another question you need to consider is who is your opponent? As we've been mentioning a few times already, most players don't bluff enough. And so if you're playing a high-level player, somebody who might be in the MPL or might be top-aiding GPs all over the place, some high-level players are more likely to consider the possibility of a bluff, and they'll also be more likely to think through, what should I be doing in this situation if my opponent is bluffing? In a brand new set or amongst other newer players, your opponents might just snap off the block without really thinking about it. And um, a little side note here, Generally, the higher rank we tend to be on Arena, and the deeper into a set, the more likely bluffing is better for you, because you are able to uh, kind of finesse the types of players you're, you're playing against and, and work that to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if I'm playing at like mythic level on, uh, on a certain set, and I know every trick in the format, and I know my opponents probably also know every trick in a format, I know that they're also thinking in the same level as I am, Whereas uh, if I, you know, am playing against someone who's day one magic and I attack a 2-2 into their 3-3, they, they, they might not be at the level to think about bluffing it. They might just go, oh, sweet, a free 
like zero for one. I'll take it. Mm-hmm. So kind of on these same lines, knowing the format is pretty important. For example, what are the combat tricks in the format? So this sounds tedious, but I really think that knowing every single trick in the format is pretty necessary to master bluffing in, in a certain format. So I've actually paused mid-game before to quickly pull up the spoiler of a, of a brand new set before I've gotten all of the combat tricks and pump spells and removal spells memorized. But after a while of playing it, you do eventually learn everything that can happen at instant speed in a given set. So is there, say, a giant growth effect? Is there a titanic growth effect? Is there a, a sure strike effect that pumps power or gives a, an ability like first strike or lifelink or indestructible or death touch? I genuinely think that learning all of these can really inform your bluffing decisions well. Yeah, and we actually did an entire episode on combat and combat tricks a couple of weeks ago. So mm-hmm. check that out where we kind of, we, we discuss knowing combat tricks a bit more in detail. So one other question that you want to be asking yourself is what are the surrounding circumstances you find yourself in at the moment? Is this a blisteringly fast format like M21 where losing a 3-3 early in the game might actually be a catastrophic tempo loss for you? Or is this a late game format where your opponent might be more than happy to trade a 3-3 for your pump spell or potentially your spell and your creature? You definitely want to be considering these various things that aren't actually part of maybe the game itself, but will help inform your decisions about what's important, what are actions that your opponents would like to be taking, what are actions you would like to be taking, and what are actions your opponent would like to stop you from taking. Mm -hmm. And one last little note, be sure to bluff consistently. So if you attack your 2-2 into your opponent's 3-3, representing, say, giant growth, then the next turn, if nothing else about the board is changed, so you want to do that again. If you're trying to bluff a very specific spell, that tends to work out better than bluffing the vague uh, kind of, I have a combat trick. For example, if you attack your 2-2 into a 3-3, leaving up one green, clearly bluffing a giant growth, and then the next turn, you leave up one red and attack that same 2-2 into the same 3-3, now your opponent's thinking, do they really have a one red and a one green combat trick? Or if you say uh, tap out and then don't attack, well, why wouldn't you attack and then leave up the ability to use your pump spell and then play your thing, right? Or or maybe not play your thing afterwards. So you want to be consistent. You want to actually kind of pretend that you have the spell that you're bluffing in your hand. Yeah, I think that's huge. Keeping a specific spell in mind is massive because if you find yourself just thinking, you know what, I'm going to bluff here. Well, you might stumble on yourself. Like Ben said, you might leave up a mountain when you meant to leave up a forest. Um, You might play the wrong land a couple turns in advance. So these kinds of things, keeping these specific situations in mind will really help you gain an edge uh, over your opponents who aren't doing that. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some other less common situations where bluffing can also be important besides, uh, say, combat tricks. For example, consider the sight that strikes fear into the hearts of mid-range green players, (coughs) Ben, all over the world. (laughs) An opposing blue mage, or perhaps me, passes the turn with triple blue up. Any blue mage is going to bluff a counterspell given the chance, and most will actually bluff the counterspell, but then also have some other instant speed spell to to use that mana on. And you should be doing the same thing if you're playing these colors. Similarly, Mm -hmm. leaving particular lands up when you pass a turn can bluff a potential removal spell or a pump spell if you're about to be attacked, and sandbagging a land might be useful there. And actually, we're going to find, I think... Uh, I, I don't think I'm taking any hot takes here, but sandbagging lands is going to be pretty important in Zendikar Rising. Yeah, it might actually become, instead of sandbagging, which for those that aren't familiar with the term, just means kind of pretending that you have a spell when you're just holding a land. In this case, uh, in Zendikar, lands are spells, and spells are lands, and lands trigger spells, and who knows what else can go on. So it's going to be a pretty interesting resource-based format, I think. 
Agreed. One thing to consider here, you know, we're talking about, you know, you're a blue mage maybe and you're leaving up mana to do something on your opponent's turn or at your bluffing that you have something to do on their turn. In this case, oftentimes you want to make sure you have multiple things that you could do. So say in this case, like I said, you're, you're bluffing a countervailing winds. You know, you leave up the three mana. You don't actually have a countervailing winds in hand, but you leave up the mana and you pass a turn. Mm-hmm. Well, your opponent sees you have three mana open and they don't play their bomb because they expect you have a counterspell. If they just pass without playing their bomb, sure, you per- sort of prevented them from playing their bomb, but they might use their mana to play something else that you wouldn't have countered or they wouldn't think you would counter. Well, in that case, you're kind of out the three mana. You know, one of the biggest things, uh, which we might end up talking about in a separate episode later down the line, is using up all your mana every turn in limited is super important. Mm-hmm. If you're passing, leaving up three mana so that you can bluff a counterspell to prevent your opponent from playing something really massive, but then they don't do that and they have something else they can do that you likely wouldn't counterspell, well, you just kind of wasted three mana. And so generally, you want to think about what can I do if my opponent plays around the situation I'm setting up for a bluff? And you want to do this even when you're not bluffing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've gone through a lot of our you know, main ideas about bluffing here. Let's consider all this logic at once and think if we could call a bluff that our opponent's potentially making. So here's an example. Let's say we're playing Eldrain Limited, uh, which just had a flashback. Most of us have been around for it, so I think it's pretty good to talk about. Let's say my opponent is playing an aggressive red-white knight's deck, and they're at 12. I'm playing blue-green, like ramp control, and I'm at 8, and I'm empty-handed. My opponent attacks with a 2-2-7 dwarves, and a 3-3 Burning Yard Trainer. And they have two cards in hand, and they have one red mana. I have a 4-5 Moonlit Scavengers, and I'm at 8 life. So there are four instant speed effects for one mana in this format, for for one red specifically. Red Cat Melee, which is an instant that deals four, makes them sack a land, but it's a late game, who cares? Barge In, which gives a creature plus two, plus two. Boulder Rush, which gives a creature plus two, plus oh, that's the uh, adventure side of Rimrock Knight. And Haggle, which is the adventure side of Merchant of the Veil, which you know doesn't actually affect power and toughness, so we don't care right now. First of all, this is a really good attack by my opponent. Blocking with my 4-5 on the 3-3 would allow them to either 1-for-1 one one with Bargin, trade with Boulder Rush, or kind of 2 or maybe 3 if you count the land for 1 themselves with Red Cap Melee. But it does get the 4-5 out of the way. So this is a, a, a very tough situation to know how to block exactly. If I snap off the block on the 3-3, which, you know, a 4-5 eats a 3-3 really well. But because I know the format well, because I know what they could potentially have, I'm going to attempt to see if I can call their bluff or if I have to respect it. In this case, I think I have to actually respect it. Because if I end up blocking that 3-3 with my 4-5 and they do have barge in or uh, boulder rush, I'm very far behind. In, In one case my creature is dead and they're left with two creatures. In the other case, my creature trades with theirs and they're able to then play the Rimrock Knight afterwards. So again, they have two creatures. So I personally, I would block the 2-2 here because I know for a fact that you know they have only the ability to play one thing that uh, they might be bluffing slash meta-ing me a little bit because they might know that I know what's in the format and that I have to respect the ability to give plus two plus two or plus two plus oh with the creature attached. So if I block the two two here, there's no way they can pump the two two to make it trade with my four five or kill my four five. I take three, maybe five if they decide to use one of their things, but then I, I think I'm setting myself up to 
have the p- best potential outcome from this situation. So if they have it, uh, you know, that's it. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, things would keep playing out. But if they don't, then, you know, this is just a really solid attack. Yeah, this is a great situation uh, to kind of cover all that we've been talking about. And I think this gives our listeners a bit of a way to understand how to maybe start approaching bluffing if they're not doing it already. Um, if you guys aren't doing it, I would suggest giving it a try. Definitely think about your opponent. I think it's really important. And in my case, like my situation, whenever I'm going to try to attempt a bluff, or am thinking about this sort of situation, I tend to prefer to think that my opponents know more about me at Magic than I do. Like, they just are better Magic players than me. Mm -hmm. And I think over-expecting from your opponent will help you play around uh, worse scenarios, like things that could really go wrong for you. In general, you might find that that's not actually the truth, but I think it helps a lot to assume that your opponents are better at the game than you and would be making all of the the best plays don't expect your opponents to make mistakes (laughs) yeah so overall uh to kind of summarize just remember to keep in mind does your opponent have mana up what are the potential cards that they could have who are you playing against what uh what tricks are in the format what's the format like and be consistent then ultimately apply all of these to figure out is the potential cost worth the benefit of this attack and oftentimes it is I think that's the hardest part about bluffing. You have to kind of recalibrate your brain to understand that oftentimes you can get through with your 2-2 with almost you know no cost to yourself. Because for your opponent, who's, again, also running these numbers, they're also thinking about what you could have. And like, like Zach said, if you're assuming that your opponent is better than you and that they know the tricks in the format, if you attack your 2-2 into their bomb rare, no way are they blocking. It's such a safe attack. So next time this comes up in Limited, give it a shot. It won't always go right. And you might want to start out a little safe on the, as you're getting better at this, but I think it's a really valuable skill and, you know, don't tell too many people because the more people start bluffing, then <laughs> the less affecting bluffing becomes. Just keep this a, a draft chap secret. <laughs> yeah. Also it's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because conversely, you know, if you go into it expecting your opponents better than you and they actually are, or equal to you, let's say you, can think through these steps. You can think ahead, think for your opponent, and oftentimes it'll work out for you. Your, your thinking will be correct. But when you're mm. playing against an opponent who's maybe new to the game or not quite as good, a lot of times you'll make an attack that you're like, this is a really clever buff. I'm attacking my 2-2 into their 2-3 bomb. That would be an obvious situation where I wouldn't want to attack unless I had something. And your opponent is too new to the game, doesn't realize that combat tricks are even a thing, or doesn't know which combat tricks are in the game, and they're just going to snap off the block. And you're bluffing, you don't have it, so you just get punished. Um, You know, these situations can happen, and I think it's going to be, you know, it it can be pretty easy to dwell on the situations where your bluff goes poorly and think, oh, bluffing's stupid, we shouldn't do it. But as Ben kind of mentioned, so few people are doing it that in general, right now, you can get away with good good situations um for free basically because people aren't expecting a bluff and so that when you make an attack that looks stupid or looks like uh there's no reason somebody would be doing this without a trick in hand they're gonna assume you have it and usually you can you can get away with a few things there Mm. be prepared to toss up that nice emote when when someone catches you (laughs) and uh, you get you get got in your own bluff and yeah just think about uh whether this has a high upside like is this a, a basically a free bluff or is this just not really worth my time? 
be smart about this, apply some of these strategies and uh, like, comment and subscribe your bluffs that you get away with. Yeah, I think, I mean, that about wraps it up for us. Um, feel free to uh, reach out to us on Twitter at DraftHalfPod or myself directly at Rannick Alfredian. You can catch Ben at Betafish1. All of those will be in the episode description as well. If you want to contact the podcast directly outside of Twitter, you can email us at DraftHalfPod. Uh, yeah, DraftHalfPod at gmail.com. And once again, just want to plug the, the Discord. Check that out. The link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. Totally free. Just come hang out. We'll talk about the new format and just have a lot of fun with some like-minded people. Also, if it's up your alley, it's your thing, you want to contribute back to the podcast directly, Patreon's the best place to do that. That would be at patreon.com forward slash draft pod. That's going to do it for us. And we'll catch you next week for our Zendikar Rising format breakdown. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. See you all next week. So um, I thought about talking about some of the new cards that we had. I'm really excited for this Hydra. I know you're excited for the, the blue-green nonsense, but let's just save our, our card analysis for, for next week. I actually want to talk about my favorite bluff of all time. And I'm not even entirely sure if this is a bluff. Maybe it, maybe it falls into a more genius or grifter from uh, our, our pals over at LR. But my all-time favorite bluff-esque play was LSV's world-famous play at, uh, at the, the Pro Tour Finals, I believe. Or semifinals, finals? No, something like that. He's been to both so many times, who knows? I lose count. So this is LSV versus uh, Jeremy Dezani. So LSV had four lands and uh, Danto the first fort, which, uh, you know, he can tap to make a 1-1 vampire token. So Jeremy has four attacking creatures, and he'd be dead on the backswing. Luis has a board as well. So it's kind of like an aggro mirror match. They're, they're both white decks trying to beat each other down. <laughs> so Dazani, he's lining up his attack. And as he's trying to figure out if he can attack through LSV's board in order to make him either block enough to kill him or put him dead on the swing, he's uh, lining up his attacks and LSV reaches over to the side and grabs a vampire token. Now he has four mana up and he's, you know, kind of indicating to his opponent that he's going to be making a vampire token uh, to block with. So designing grabs a token, uses it to help line up blocks, and says, all right, I'm attacking with everything. LSV casts Settle the Wreckage, throws it down on the battlefield, and uh, all Dazani can do is extend the hand as all of his creatures are exiled. Oh, man. Yeah, that's A, that's such, just from listening to LR enough, I mean, I've never actually met Luis, but uh, just from listening to LR enough, that sounds like a total LSV move. And, um, yeah, I think it kind of lines up more as like a genius or grifter type thing, but yeah, that, that just goes to show you, you shouldn't, uh, you should more or less ignore your opponents when they try to give you input. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, I guess it's not a bluff. Maybe I just wanted to talk about it and put it in, in some way, shape or form. I highly recommend looking up this, uh, <laughs> looking up this clip because it's, it's some of the best that professional magic has to offer. 